Welcome to the Central Christian Church Podcast. We pray this message helps you find and follow Jesus. If you would like to connect with us more, please visit us at centralsj.org. It was Peter Deneka who fled from Russia to avoid the communist revolution in the 20th century. Upon arriving in Chicago, he met a guy who actually led him to Jesus, told him about the radical grace of Jesus. Uh, Peter went to Moody Bible College and became a prolific uh, minister, both in the United States as well as Russia. But Peter tells the story of how he came to the United States, how his parents uh, scraped all the money together that they could, came from a very poor family to buy this one ticket to get him onto a boat to the United States. His mom, again, didn't have much, so she put together this knapsack with a few pieces of clothing and some stale bread and sent him on his voyage to the United States. As Peter would walk by the dining columns, he looked in there, the lush uh, plates of food, the big spread and the smell and the aroma that filled the air, and he longed to sit at that table. He longed to be able to have a meal like they were eating. Well, some of the sailors recognized Peter and and realized that he was, they thought he was a stowaway. And so they said, hey, if you work with us, you can, we'll we'll share our our rations with you. And it wasn't much. The the portions were were very small and the meals consisted of uh, of gruel and and tarmac and just stuff that wasn't wasn't very appealing. And one of the the sailors one day said, hey, Peter, how did you, how did you get on this boat anyway? Like how, how did you become a stowaway to the United States And Peter looked at the sailor and said, with very confused face, I don't know what you're talking about. I have a ticket. The the, the, the sailor said, well, Peter, let me see the ticket. And, And Peter, unable to read, showed the sailor the ticket. And he said, Peter, with this ticket, you're entitled to three square meals a day on this boat. You could be eating in the dining column. Commons, there it is. Uh, But Peter didn't realize because he... He couldn't read, didn't realize all the benefits that he was entitled to. And the Apostle Paul indicates when we come to Romans chapter 8 that many Christians are in the same predicament in their spiritual journey. We know we've received Christ and therefore we know that we're, we're entitled to this ticket into heaven. All the while, many of the benefits that we long for are at our disposal but are left untouched. As we left off last week, Paul gave us this four-part promise for Christians in the midst of suffering. Last week, we discovered that, that God has determined to make us all like Jesus, and he's, he's, he's weaving everything together for that end. He says, says, all things work together for the good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, and his purpose is to make us more like Jesus. Second thing we saw last week is that our journey ends with the redemption of our bodies. Like this world isn't the end, like this is just the beginning, but there's going to come a day when our, our pain, our sorrows are going to be transformed into healing and into joy. Third, we saw in the meantime that the Holy Spirit abides in us, intercedes for us, helps us. This is our strength for the day and our bright hope for tomorrow. And the fourth thing we saw last week is that through all of this, we have this assurance that what God started in us, he's going to bring to completion in us. And if you're new today, we've been studying our way through this amazing book, the book of Romans. And we are currently in Romans chapter 8. And we've just been going verse by verse through this incredible book. And so you've, if you're just new, you're just joining us. Man, you've picked a great day to jump in because Paul is, is kind of giving his closing arguments for grace. This, this closing 
statements. And he's going to close with like, kind of like a prosecuting attorney. Like he's going to close with seven pivotal questions. After all the evidence that's been presented, now he gives us seven questions. We're going to process three of those questions today, four of those questions next week as we close out our study of this amazing chapter, Romans chapter 8. So with that as an introduction, would you stand to your feet with me as we read our verse for the day? Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 32 is what we'll be studying. So if you want to pull it up on your, your Bible, your mobile device... We'll also have it on the screen. Uh, whenever we get to the red letter words, if you could, really loud, really proud, uh, read that out loud with me. And this is uh, a very fond verse here at Central. If you've been around, you might recognize this. Here's what it says. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us Father, we thank you for your word and for your promises laid out here in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 32. God, would you unpack your word to us today and may hope and joy and perspective well up in our hearts today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you give someone a high five and you can have a seat. Someone a high five. Be friendly. Which, by the way, we should all be in a pretty good mood, right? We got an extra hour of sleep, huh? Who enjoyed that? Man, it's like my favorite day of the year. Extra hour of sleep. It's like a, a gift. All right, if you're taking notes, this is where they begin. Here's the first question. What then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to these things? Here's what Paul says, Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things. Well, what are these things that Paul is referring to? Well, if we rewind to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. I mean, what are we going to say to these things? That in the gospel, the power of God is revealed. That when the gospel is preached, when the gospel is heard, it has the power to transform lives. The gospel has the power to raise the spiritually dead. In the gospel, we find the power not just to improve our life, but to make us new. The gospel reveals the power of God. Watch this. For everyone, including you, including me. What are we going to say to these things? I mean, this is amazing. The next verse, Romans 1.17, often overlooked because of the prominence of verse 16. But it says this. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. I mean, how can we be made right in God's sight? This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works. We can't earn it from start to finish. It's by faith. I mean, what are we going to say about these things that God has done for us? Romans 3.10 tells us that there is no one righteous, not even one. But in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our unrighteousness, Romans 3.21 tells us, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him. By, without keeping the requirements of the law, he made us right by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. This is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned and falls short of God's glorious standard, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. How did he do it? He did it through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. I mean, what are we going to say about these things? As a result, Romans 5.1, since we have been made right 
in God's sight by faith. We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Once we were enemies of God, but now we're at peace with God. We saw in Romans 5 when we studied that, that we're, we're no longer under this reign of sin and death, but he's delivered us into this reign of grace. I mean, what are we going to say about these things? Romans 6, 2, when we, we died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? This, this Paul's theology is that what's happened to Christ has happened to you. When Christ died, you died. When Christ rose, you rose. We died to sin. How can we, we, how can we live in it any longer, Paul's going to say. It's like we've been, we found freedom from sin. I mean, what are we going to say about these things? Romans 6.22, but now that you have been set free from sin... And the benefits you reach, it leads to holiness. So not only has he rescued us, but he's, he's given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to live life like he's called us to live. And the more we live life like he's called us to live, the more we experience the abundant life that he's promised us. We're no longer under the dictates of sin. The Holy Spirit's in you, empowering you, helping you live according to God's good plan and pleasure. I mean, what, what are we going to say to these things? It's amazing. Romans 7, 4, you died to the law with Christ. And why is that a big deal? Because check it out. If, if, if a, a criminal commits a crime and he's fleeing from the police, right? And he's violated the law. Now the law enforcers are pursuing him. And in that pursuit, this, this criminal chooses to drive off of a cliff. And in, therefore, invariably, he, he dies, do the police officers then, then open the car with like the, the, the jaws of life and get him out of the vehicle, put him in handcuffs and begin to read him his rights? No, no, that would be ludicrous. That doesn't make sense. Why? Because the law only applies to the living, not to the dead. And here's what Paul is saying. You died to the law with Christ. Why is that such a big deal? Because when we come to Romans 8, verse 1 and 2, it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is that possible for those who are in Christ Jesus? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. You're outside of the realm of being condemned because you're in Christ. You're dead to the law and therefore the law is dead to you. You're outside the realm of possibility of being condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, what, what do you got to say about those things? It's amazing. Second question that Paul asks is, if God is for us, then who could be against us? If God is for you, then who could be against you? Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who could be against us. Let's ask the question this way. Is there any power greater than God? No. Is there any power in the seen world or the unseen world that could circumvent God's work in your life? No. Is there any power that can stop God? No. And so if God is for us, who could be against us? Romans eight thirty one. it begins with this word, if, if God 
And if we're not careful, we could read that and say, well, man, I wish God was for me because if he was, then my circumstance would look different. If God was for me, then he'd make all my enemies turn and flee. But that's a a wrong way to look at it. It would be more accurate to read that verse to say, since God is for me, who could be against me? Since God is for you, who could be against you? Since God is for us, what could ever stop the completion of our salvation is a good way to read it. Since God is for us, how could there ever be any condemnation? Since God exercised all his power in our salvation, since God provided a way for you in justification, since God is currently at work empowering you through the Holy Spirit, helping you live life according to God's plan and design, this this process of sanctification, since God has prepared a place for you in glorification, since he's done all that for you, who could be against you? And Paul is very well aware of all the things that are against you. He's well aware of of critics that were against him and critics that might be against you. People who slandered him might be willing to slander you. Not only the things in the seen world, but things in the unseen world. He's aware of the spiritual forces of evil that are against you. Ephesians 6.12, Paul says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And even though that is the reality, if God is for you, who could be against you? Psalm 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I have all I need. We could invert that text and read it this way. I have all I need. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd, because God is for me. Psalm 23.4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God, for you. Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Why do we need God to be our light and our salvation? Listen, because sometimes seasons get dark. Sometimes circumstances don't look real bright, but even in those moments, the Lord is your light. Why do we need him to be our salvation? Because salvation isn't just one time event where we punch our ticket and then we go to heaven. No, we need to be delivered. I don't know about, I need to be delivered from multiple circumstances. God, would you deliver me again? God is my light. He is my salvation. Therefore, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Listen, God is for you. Psalms 46.1, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. This is true, not just when people are troubling you and people will trouble you, but he is a very present help in those times of trouble. But God is a very present help in times of trouble even when you brought the trouble on yourself. Even when you're like, I've blown it, I know it. There's consequences for that, yes. But even in the midst of that, God is still for you. You say, well, what about this week? Man, I didn't, I didn't read my Bible. I didn't pray. I got into an argument. And man, I said some things that were far from godly. He's still for you. In your good weeks, he's for you. In your bad weeks, he's for you. Why? Because you're a child of God. God is for you. He's an ever-present help in times of trouble. God's for you. And and just by the way, who's God and how powerful is he? Who is this God who's for you? Isaiah 40, 25 says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Like the answer, there's no one who's his equal. 
There's no one that even comes close to comparing to him. There's not a devil in hell that's as powerful as him. There's not an angel in heaven that's as powerful as him. There's no nation. There's no no group of people, no, 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 no sect of people, no nuclear power, no hydropower, no solar power, no beast, no mountain, no ocean, no galaxy. That is his equal. Lift up your eyes, he says. Look at the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name? I mean, who else could do that? Who's his equal? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded from God. How could a child of God say, you don't see me anymore, God? God, where are you? God, God, why have you turned your back? Don't you care? Don't you see me? How, how, could, how could any child of God ever say that? Look what he says. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. No one's ever going to go to God. Yeah, no one's. You'll never go to God and say, Say, God, here's what's going on. And he's never going to say, you know what? There's some things going on in the Middle East, and I'm a little preoccupied this week. You're never going to go to him and say, I don't have the time. He's not going to say, I don't have the time for you. No, no, no. You could, if, if he exhausted all the strength, all the power that you and I could fathom, he will not diminish his strength by 1%. His strength, no one, his understanding, no one can fathom. He doesn't grow weary. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't get tired. He gives strength, though, to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Do you need some strength today? Are you feeling a little weak today? It's found in him. Even youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, they will renew their strength. They will soar on the wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and will not faint. Supernatural power. And look at it. God is for you. That God is for you. And if he's for you, who could be against you? The third question Paul gives us, if God gave us Jesus, won't he give us everything else we need? I mean, if he loved you enough to give you his son, don't you think he'd love you enough to help you in your time of need? If he loved you enough to sacrifice his one and only son, don't you think he'd love you enough to give you the answer to that question? Don't you think he'd love you enough to come through. Here's what Paul says, Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously, graciously give us all things? Well, one way we could read that verse in summary is how much does God love me? How much does he love me? You know, the value of something by the price someone's willing to pay for that object uh, I had a friend tell me it's the eBay rule. It's the eBay rule. Uh, our boys, um, a couple years ago, started collecting basketball cards and baseball cards, and, and they're all into it, right? So anytime they'd, they get some money, they're like, can we go to the card store? Can we go to the card store? And yeah, for sure. And so they started collecting. And uh, next family vacation, when we went to see my parents in Missouri, uh, my parents uh, you know, knew that the kids were collecting. They say, hey, Tim, look what we found in your closet. And it was this, this box of my old basketball cards and baseball cards. And it was, you know, I'm older than them. So it was, it was the good ones like Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco and David Robinson and Carl Malone and Larry Bird and and Michael Jordan, and the kids were like, they just know of Michael Jordan because of what they see on social media and tennis shoes. Um, 
They don't realize how awesome he really was. Uh, but they're like, Dad, you got Michael Jordan cards. I'm like, yeah, it's awesome, right? And they're like, give me your phone. Let me see how much it's worth. And so they start Googling, right? And this one's worth like $75. And that one's like $110. And that one, wow, that one's like $350. And I'm like, we're going to be able to pay for our kids' Christian school education. This is awesome. Let, let's start an eBay store. And so that's what we did. We started an eBay store. And I was like, this this one's going to sell for sure. And so whatever the list price was that says this is the value of the card, that's what I posted it as. You know how many cards I sold? <laughs> Zero. Because the, the value of something isn't what the paper says. The value is only what someone else is willing to pay. I was thinking about that this week whenever I saw this on, on Instagram. The, you know, if you're familiar with the San Jose housing market, it's not, it's different, right? So for those of you online, just bear with us. So here's a house for sale, 1.55, right? So $1,550,000, but it looks pretty good. I mean, six bedroom, four, four baths, 2,700 square feet. We're like, wow, well, that's, that's fair, you know, like for Bay Area, like, those in Texas or Missouri, wherever you're tuning in from, like, this doesn't make any sense to you, but bear with us. But look at the description. Look at the next description. It's great. Here's the da-da-da-da-da. Home has been an inactive meth lab and meth contamination. You're going to pay over $1.5 million for a meth lab. And here's what we know in the Bay. Someone will be happy to pay it. And they're just tear it down to studs and start over, right? 1.5 million. But the value of something is only what someone is willing to pay. And what Paul is going to tell us here in Romans 8, 32, is that you pass the eBay rule. There's someone, you're not just valuable on paper, but there's a buyer who is willing to pay top dollar for you. But Paul's reminding us that regardless of the footnote description of your life, Maybe there's some things in your garage that you're not super proud of. But he was still willing to pay above asking price for you. You say, well, how do we know that? How much does God love me? And here's what I want to do for the next few moments. I, I want you to think not of Juan, because it's easy to say, yeah, sure, God loves Juan, because anybody can sing like that and play guitar. Wow, who wouldn't love a guy like that? And it's easy for us to say that. It's easy for me to say, well, yeah, sure, God loves Lisa. Like, sure, God loves Melissa. Sure, God, God loves Paul. Yeah, sure, God loves Michael, Chris. Yeah, for sure. But me, ah, I don't know. There's some, some stuff in my garage, I, in my past, I'm not super proud of. And so, sure, yeah, maybe Jacob, maybe Roger, but not me. And here's what I want to do for the next few moments. I want you to think about God's love and the price he's willing to pay, not for the person next to you, not to someone else in the room, you. I want you to think about the price he's willing to pay for you. Isaiah 53.4 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we've been healed. At the heart of the gospel is an understanding that on the cross my sin was placed on Jesus. God punished him with his righteous wrath for me, for my sin, since Jesus had no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, but God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How much does God value you? 
1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The cross was not an accident. It was, not, it was God dealing with our sin. At the cross, God the Father righteously judged our sin as God the Son took your sin upon himself and bore your punishment that you deserve. He took our death so we might know his life. And this is critical for us to understand. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare, he didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. We have a tendency to do this, right? We have a tendency to want to spare people we love, especially our kids. We want to spare them heartache. We want to spare them pain. We want to spare them suffering. We want to spare them anxiety. We want to spare them trouble. But even though God loved the son, he did not spare him. Instead, he subjected him to everything that was necessary to bring about your salvation and my salvation. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up, gave him up for us all, delivered him, handed him over. He determined him to die on the cross. Romans 4.25, he was handed over to die because of our sin. He was raised to life to make us right with God, that this wasn't an easy thing. We'll never know the full weight of our sin, honestly. We do know the weight of our sin is heavy enough to condemn us to hell for all of eternity. We do know the weight of our sin brought Jesus the night before he went to the cross to say, God, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. I don't, I know what's ahead. Matthew 27, 46, as Jesus is on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus didn't see it as men executing him. He correctly understood it as God pouring out his righteous wrath on him, punishing him for his sins, for, for your sins, for my sins. Galatians 3:13. but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law when he hung on the cross. He took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. It was our wrongdoing. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but, but gave him up for us. He gave him up for you. How much does God love you? Enough to give up his own son for you because your sin, my sin required it. It wasn't just for our benefit. He was handed over instead of us. First Peter 3.18, for Christ died for sin once for all, the righteous Jesus for the unrighteous me, you, to bring you to God. This is the only way we can have right standing before God. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he values you. Romans 5.8, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we've been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Reminds me of the words of the old hymn writer that says this, behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast, therefore, in anything, no gift, 
no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. He loves you that much. You passed the eBay test. You might have some descriptions in the footnotes of your life you're not real proud of. <laughs> he still chose you. He still got you. Romans 8:32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give all things? Graciously give. The Greek word for, for graciously give is charismai. It's this, this grace gift. It's this, the, the literal translation would be God, God showed us his excessive kindness. It's preferential treatment. We could read it as he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him preferentially give us all things? I mean, you got preferential treatment. You got preferential status. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will we not also along with him show you excessive kindness and give you everything you've ever needed? Romans 8, 32, he's going to graciously give us all things. Just as we saw last week, all things are working together for the good of those who love him. All things, the good things, the pleasant things, the challenging things, the horrific things, the suffering things all things. But now, along with him, he's going to graciously give us all things, everything that you need to live a godly life. He's given us all things, the big things, the small things. And if that weren't enough, Paul has four more questions for you, four more questions that are going to help us frame up this case for God's radical grace in your life. And if these questions didn't get you this, this week, uh, the four questions next week, I think, will frame up just how much God loves you. And we're all going to leave this place singing that song, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song will forever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. He loves you that much. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.